Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of trauma recovery and being neurodivergent in a neurotypical world. In today's episode, we're going to review the entire alphabet of coping skills that we use to deal with anxiety. I am Autumn, the older sister, and for my fact of the day, I am going to share with you one of the random coping skills I use for anxiety that is probably completely useless, <laughs> and that is I, I like to bite. When I'm anxious, I feel driven to bite things. And oddly, this is uh, this is annoying for my boyfriend, though it might be annoying because the thing I'm driven most to bite when I'm anxious is him. I could definitely see why that might be a problem. Uh, it would definitely be a problem for me, not only because it would be weird to be bitten, but also because I got a thing about spit. So I was really gross. I am Ivy, the younger sister. And speaking of coping mechanisms for dealing with anxiety that probably aren't doing any good, I have a recent one that I have adopted uh, since I was in my car accident. And I'm not entirely sure why. Doesn't really make a whole lot of sense as to why it would help. But now, when I feel particularly anxious, my mind has decided that what will help me most is to drink more fluids. I don't think that that's actually helping with the anxiety. I do think hydrating is important, so it's probably still for the best that I'm drinking more fluids, although sometimes it has the opposite effect and actually causes more anxiety for me because I always have to make sure that I am near a toilet that is easily accessible. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like that uh, particular coping skill might actually make the anxiety worse because I know you've told me in the past with your ADD that you also find going to the bathroom really boring. And so you put it off to the last possible minute anyways. Uh, it is really boring. And that has been a new challenge trying to time things correctly, especially because I have all of these treatments and stuff that I'm in right now. And the first one that I have in the morning is my chiropractic appointment. I drink a bunch of fluids first thing in the morning. This is where it makes my anxiety worse because not only am I sitting in traffic worried that I'm going to pee myself, but then I get to the office and there's two bathrooms, right? So there's one in the chiropractic office and then there's one that's in the main part of the, the building. And I could just use the one that's in my chiropractic office, but I almost always go further out of the way to use the one that's in the main part of the building because the one in the chiropractic office is actually right there by the receptionist desk. And so then I get anxious because I'm like, okay, what if there's somebody in that bathroom? And then I'm just standing there awkwardly waiting for that person to come out. And then they're waiting on me to start the appointment. And I'm just being stared at by the receptionist as I'm like waiting to go to the bathroom. And what if the person that's in the bathroom is in the bathroom to do number two? And then I'm really just standing there for a long time, but I can't go into my actual appointment without having gone to the bathroom because I already have to pee. And I know when he's doing adjustments, he's going to be pushing really hard on my low back. And I'm worried now that I'm going to pee myself. So just, I overthink it. And then my anxiety just gets way worse. So I, like I said, I don't know why my brain has decided that drinking more fluids will help my anxiety. It seems to be doing the opposite. Again, hydration is important. Drink lots of water folks, but I, I don't think it's actually helping my anxiety at all. And that is part of why we're doing this episode today, because this is a lived experience review of anxiety coping skills, because you hear about so many anxiety coping skills out in the world in self-help, social media, possibly even therapy. And you wonder, like, well, maybe it'll work because it's supposed to work, right? Well, does it? 
I, I've had some mixed results with some of these. So we're going to go through an entire alphabet of coping skills today, talk about them and kind of weigh them back and forth. Now, before we jump in, though, I want to specifically note that today's episode may sound a little weird. And that's because we actually already recorded this episode about a week or so ago. But our podcast recording service ate up the entire first half of the episode and destroyed it. But the second half is good. So we are only recording the first half of the episode again. And then the second half will be the original recording. And this should actually be kind of interesting because during the first recording session, I was extremely anxious and you'll probably hear that coming through. And in today's recording session, I'm a lot less anxious. And that's because I already had my panic attack for the day, quite literally. And so now I'm just kind of wrung out. So if randomly in the middle of the episode, you wonder what did Autumn take that all of a sudden she's totally anxious at the number 10 level, it was a previous recording. <laughs> so bear with us on that. Yeah, and it'll be especially interesting because it's flip-flop for me. When we recorded it the first time, I was feeling decently chill. And today I am not feeling decently chill. So it'll be interesting. We thought it would be kind of a fun experiment to have that contrast in anxiety levels and just to see if it does come through in our recording voices or not. We will go ahead and get started. And we want to be very clear, this is not an extensive list of every single coping skill you could possibly use for anxiety. So what this is, is just 26 various coping skills, and we arranged them alphabetically. And that is because unorganized information actually makes me anxious. And so I was like, oh, let's do the alphabet. And Ivy's like, okay, whatever, because unorganized information does not in any way make her anxious. So let's go ahead and start with letter A. So the first coping skill we're going to be talking about today is actually a double, and that is acceptance and accommodation. And this coping skill is all about acknowledging you have anxiety, accepting it as part of your life, and making room for it. So if you're like me or Ivy, anxiety is possibly a part of almost who you are. I have been anxious my entire life. Given stories that my mom has told me in the past, I think I was probably anxious in the womb for Pete's sake. So the idea of anxiety ever not being a part of me is unrealistic. At one point, I used to think, you know, I would love if I could just finally get to the Zen point and be so calm. And as I've gotten older and older, I've realized that's probably never going to happen. Yes, my anxiety gets better and better and better, but I think it's always going to be part of me. And having known that now and accepted that, it has actually eased the anxiety that I have about my anxiety because it's given me the permission to make accommodations for the anxiety in my life and to mitigate the damages that come with a high level of anxiety. I also feel like I have been anxious from the very beginning. Even in my earliest memories as a very tiny child, I remember being painfully shy and always hiding behind my parents. That certainly seems like something a very anxious child would probably do. I've, I've always felt pretty anxious. Sometimes it just spikes like this. And th that's one of the things that goes into this acceptance and accommodation for me is that I don't always know what's going to spike my anxiety. Sometimes I know, sometimes there's a specific catalyst that happens. And then other times I have no idea. It's just 
a thing that happens. My neurochemicals get wonky or I just have lots of underlying stress that I don't recognize. Being able to just ride the wave has been a really important aspect for me in actually dealing with my anxiety. And I would not be able to do that if I didn't first accept that I have it. If I was just railing against it all the time and being in denial and trying to pretend like it's not happening, it would be much more of a struggle. But recognizing that I have it, not stigmatizing that I have anxiety and just basically trying to be gentle with myself when it does spike and finding helpful coping mechanisms to deal with it. Or sometimes when nothing seems to be helping, just accepting that it is what it is and it won't last forever and I just have to ride the wave. You really can't do anything for your anxiety if you don't first see it and face it and it, just accept that it's there. And then from there, you develop workarounds and you do develop other coping skills and it does get easier to deal with. But that part of the process never happens if you can't even acknowledge that you are dealing with anxiety. And that's exactly why I recommend this coping skill 10 out of 10, because I really feel that that is where the process starts. If you're not able to accept the fact that you have anxiety and just be like, this is what it is and not just accepting it forever and being like, I will always be this way and there's no way to get better, but just accepting that anxiety is part of your life at whatever level it is right now. I think you're going to really have difficulty doing anything else with your anxiety. So I say 10 out of 10 recommend for this coping skill. I also say 10 out of 10 recommend on this one because I do think it's such a fundamental part of even being able to start coping with it. Because if you're not looking at it with a level of acceptance and being gentle with yourself and being patient with yourself, you start to stigmatize it. You start to feel ashamed that you have it. You start feeling guilty about how it impacts your life and the lives of other people around you. And that's ultimately not really helpful. So being able to just get to that basic level of acceptance is really a vital, and I would say in, an unavoidable stepping stone towards actually being able to deal with your anxiety in a healthy way. Very, very accurate. And one of the things that Ivy spoke to just a little earlier, writing the wave of whatever it is you're experiencing. And that goes right into our next coping skill on the list, which is our letter B, and that is balance. For me specifically, balance with anxiety means balancing my other mental health issues. So for example, when I feel myself getting extremely anxious, one of the things I do is I listen to depressing music because depressing music often triggers some of my depressive features. Being depressed, brings down that energy level of anxiety. And you may also notice that, like I said, I'm completely wrung out. I actually did have a panic attack. I was full level anxiety earlier. I was extreme pain, ended up in the emergency room. They took my blood, which I have a needle phobia. So that was where my full out panic attack came to in front of strangers. So that was fun. And you think, but yeah, you, you actually sound pretty good. That's because I'm using my autism to, to balance myself out again. And I'm using those years I learned to mask to invest energy into my voice and to continue pushing through even when I have no energy. Sometimes balance can honestly be about finding ways to balance your various mental health issues so that you can just keep functioning. You know, I actually do quite a bit of that too. For me, the way that this balance shows up is that I have bipolar. One of the things that I started doing is trying to take advantage of those natural cycles that I have, the natural ups and downs. So I am bipolar type two, 
And that's the one where you tend to have more extreme uh, depressive episodes and your manic is not quite as extreme. It's considered to be hypomanic. So when I am feeling depressed, when I am at those lows, or even when I'm at neutral, because it's not always super high, super low. A lot of times I'm kind of like writing a baseline of neutral. And when I am either neutral or feeling more on the depressed side, it's really hard to motivate myself to be as productive as I would like to be. And I also suspect there's a lot of like the ADD, ADHD stuff going on there too, where it's really hard to get myself going. And I tend to be kind of a procrastinator. So a lot of things start to fall by the wayside that really do need to get taken care of. And so what I will do is I will be very accepting of just where I'm at. I take care of the things that absolutely have to get done. And I don't pressure myself too much beyond that. And part of the reason for that is that I know that I'm going to start going into that kind of hypomanic phase. And when I'm in hypomanic, I do have a lot more energy. And sometimes having a lot more energy also increases my anxiety. And so I try to make use of that period of time to really get things done that I have been putting off for a while. And so I will let all of that stuff kind of pile up. And then when I hit that spot of like, okay, I'm ready, this stuff needs to get done right now. I will go through a period where I am just super productive. I get all of the things done and then some. And at the end of that, I have basically wrung myself dry of all of the anxiety that I had. I took care of all the things that needed to get taken care of. I got a lot of that restless energy out. And so I can actually bring myself back to baseline that way. I have found that just what I naturally deal with with being bipolar and having the, you know, the ADD, ADHD stuff, if I just stop stigmatizing it and I don't beat myself up over it and I just follow those natural cycles, I actually am more productive overall because I'm not punishing myself unnecessarily. I'm just waiting until the energy comes and I ride that wave and then I let myself rest, kind of go back and forth like that. And it's more of an undulating wave now instead of being that super high, high and that super low, low and me just beating myself up all the time in between. And you notice she says now it's more like that. And that idea specifically right there is is going to speak to my recommendation for this particular coping skill. And so that is that if you are new to the healing journey, if you are new to your diagnosis, if you are new to your mental health issues, I would say this is probably a one out of 10 would not recommend this for you uh, because the start of this is really hard. You really have to have a plethora of coping skills and understanding of yourself in order to make this work. So now if you're an expert, if you've got coping skills to deal with your anxiety and your depression and your neurodivergence and your trauma and all your other things that happen to come up and you're really good and knowledgeable about yourself, then I would say this is probably an eight out of a 10. It, it can really help you function. It can really help you get through. But for those novices out there, those first just getting their feet wet into the, the mental health exploration of themselves, this is an extremely advanced skill that's going to take a lot of work. Oh, yeah, for sure. This is definitely an advanced skill set, and it's never completely perfect either. You do get better at it, progressively better, and you do get more patient with yourself, and you do find more workarounds, and you are able to balance things out better over time. But yeah, it's definitely an advanced 
skill. I would say don't just jump right into and expect yourself to be able to naturally ride whatever wave it is that you're on because that's expecting a lot of yourself very early on. And one of the other things that I would say here is that, and we've mentioned this in other episodes of the podcast before, do not think of balance as being just this space where you get perfectly level and it stays that way. Because that's not what this really is. It's more like an equilibrium and you have to allow that balance to be more dynamic because that's how you are able to follow those cycles and and ride those waves is by getting comfortable with being stable in motion because you're never going to get to a perfect balance point where it just stays like that forever. And if you do get to a balance point and you're desperately trying to keep it at that perfect level, Ultimately, that's going to backfire on you because just trying to keep everything perfect, you're just going to start spiking your anxiety and you're going to also experience more shame and guilt for anything that seems like it's starting to tip those scales again. Which is exactly why I love that that phrase, the ride the wave, because it is that idea of movement and dynamic balance instead of a static balance that really isn't realistic. Okay, so let's go ahead and skip on to our letter C. And C is for camaraderie, essentially coping with your anxiety by seeking out the companionship of others who have similar experiences. For me, because I am not in any way, shape or form a social person at all, this often is uh, the TikTok community. I have loved getting onto TikTok and meeting other people who are like me because since I'm not social, And all I ever see are other people's masks and superficial acquaintances and all of that. I never knew that there were so many neurodivergent people like me. I never knew there were so many anxious people like me out there. And knowing that there's just something in me that just feels better. It's like, oh, it's not Autumn's fucked up and Autumn's broken. It's just, oh, no, this is a way that some people are. And that makes me feel so much better. And another resource I end up using because, again, not social, is um, memoirs. I especially love anything, anything by Jenny Lawson. Her lived experience is totally different than mine, but she does experience anxiety. And the things she writes are so relatable to me. And she has this way of putting a spin on it that just makes you laugh. And so you feel understood, you feel validated, and you've got a smile on your face. That's what camaraderie is all about. Even... Even if you can't get it from real people, you can get it from books and, and TikTok. I will admit I don't spend a whole lot of time on TikTok. I'm not a huge fan of social media, but I do enjoy memoirs as a way to find that sense of camaraderie. I know the first book that I ever read that I really felt that with is Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. I had never seen or heard anybody express what depression felt like in a way that actually was relatable to me. And yes, that book does focus more on on depression, but there are also a lot of aspects of anxiety in it as well. That book was the first time I ever actually encountered another person, as it were, where I was like, yes, you are speaking my language and this is what's going on inside my head. And oh my God, there there are words for this. And other people have felt this before me. That book left such a lasting impression on me, and I suspect it has on a lot of other people because things that we read in books or see in movies where we can relate to those experiences, it does help us so much to not feel so alone. And I also try as much as possible to hang out with my friends when... (laughs) when I am feeling anxious, partially because I have all that restless energy. So I'm actually up for 
doing things. Even if I'm super anxious about it, I'd be super anxious sitting around doing nothing too. So I do try to go and hang out with my friends. And the bulk of my friends also do struggle with anxiety themselves, which is great. Not great for them. I feel bad for them that they have to deal with anxiety too, but it's great for us both in the sense that we can relate to each other and we can find the humor in it. And we also are so patient with each other and so much more forgiving and accommodating with each other because we get it. When you live with anxiety, it does help to know that there are other people who are also living with it, who are still finding ways to get through life. And yeah, it's hard and it's a challenge, but there are other people like you. You're not the only one. You're not just fucked up and broken. There are other people who are also struggling with it. And it is possible to find that bond with those people. And it's also possible through those dynamics to see the lighthearted side of things and to be able to laugh at ourselves as well. Now, I, I'm going to say, though, that when it comes to recommending this, I am only going to rate camaraderie at about a six out of 10. And that is specifically because you've got to find a feeling of belonging that works for you for it to actually be effective for anxiety, at least in my opinion. Being autistic, one of the things I have a lot is I feel alien and I feel disconnected from others. And so if I actually go out into groups of other humans when I feel anxious, I'm going to feel even worse because my social anxiety is going to kick in and then I'm going to feel alien and I'm going to feel so different than everybody and everything's going to just blow out of proportion and be horrible. So I'm only ranking camaraderie a six out of 10 because you need to figure out where and how to find a sense of belonging that's actually going to benefit you. I think this is one of those things that it, it kind of, at least for me, it kind of depends on where I'm at. Because sometimes the anxiety is spiking so bad that I literally have to shut down all sensory input so I can't be around people. And in those situations, that camaraderie isn't even something that I want necessarily. Maybe those times it's like three out of 10. But then there are other times when it's actually really beneficial for me. And I would rate it like an eight out of 10. One of the things that I will say though, is that even when I'm in that space where I'm seeking out that camaraderie, I am intentionally seeking out with other people who also struggle with anxiety. I'm not really hanging out with people who don't get it because they don't get it because it's going to be challenging for both them and me in the situation. And also specifically seeking out the people in my life who not only live with anxiety, but who also are working on themselves. Because I've definitely had people in my life who live with anxiety and depression, and they aren't trying to improve their circumstances. They're not trying to work on themselves. They're not trying to develop healthy coping mechanisms and skills. They're really just delving down into the muck and the mire and they're getting stuck there. So when you are seeking out camaraderie, it can be really helpful and it can be really beneficial, but make sure that you are finding people to surround yourself with who are not just sinking down into the muck because there is that chance that they will pull you down with them. You definitely want to find the people who will be supportive and encouraging to bring out the best in you. Let's go ahead and move on to letter D, distractions. And I would say the biggest form of distraction that I really see nowadays is scrolling and probably phone games as well. But this can be television shows. It can be media. It can be hanging out with friends. My biggest form of distraction, probably because, you know, I'm old and I was born before the internet and 
a lot of video games and whatnot, is uh, reading. I have always been an avid reader. I always have a book going. And more often than not, it's not a very interesting book because honestly, if it's a page turner, I cannot read it because the anxiety of a thriller type book makes me too anxious. So I have to read what I call like garden club mysteries, you know, oh, Miss Susie B is going to go quilting and oh my gosh, the carpenter's dead and weird things like that where it's not very serious. I don't know. I would say it's pretty serious to the carpenter. Just, just saying. Anyway, <laughs> I wish that I could read when I'm anxious. That is not a thing that I can do because part of what happens when I'm feeling anxious and I try to read is I read all the words. I have no idea what they actually say, though. I, I can comprehend the individual word as I'm reading it, but you start stringing things together in sentences and paragraphs and storylines, and now I'm lost because I can't focus in on it. The only exception to that is webtoons and i think it's because a lot of it is pictures <laughs> and yes there are words but there are relatively minimal words and you can piece things together by following the visuals my anxious brain has about the reading comprehension of a small child so i like the colors i like the pictures i like that it's not too demanding of me but there's still good stories there so i am a fan of webtoons and that is part of why it's it's good for me when i am feeling anxious so I feel like if you get nothing else from this episode, know that any general coping skill you are given for anxiety is, is not a plug and play device. <laughs> this is something you're going to have to program to work. Just reading in general, like, oh, maybe reading will help with anxiety. For Ivy, it yanks her anxiety up to try and read, but it can calm her down to look at webtoons. But for me, if I try to look at anything like webtoon, uh, graphic novels, manga, any of that, even if I am at peace, which is rare, it will drive my anxiety up because I can't visually process. So if you learn nothing else from this episode, know that no anxiety coping skill is plug and play. <laughs> You're going to have to tweak it. Now, as far as recommendations on this, you know what, for distractions, I'm going to have to go probably an 8 out of 10. And I know that seems high because I know a lot of people are down on distractions. You're not actually dealing with the problem. But by distracting myself from the anxiety for a while, I can give myself a break from escalation. And when I give myself that break from escalation, sometimes my body can automatically de-escalate, especially if what I'm distracting myself with is a calming activity. I'm honestly even going to give it slightly higher. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 because of all of the coping skills that I use for dealing with my anxiety. This is honestly one of my favorites, and it's one of the ones that I feel is most beneficial for me. While there are times when it is important to just sit with what you're feeling and see if there's underlying reasons for it and try to process it and, and do all of that stuff. Yes, there are times when that's really important, especially early on when you're learning to deal with your anxiety or deal with your depression or whatever it is that you're coping with. It is important a lot of times to sit with what you are feeling even though it's uncomfortable, so you can start piecing together what's actually going on with you. That being said, one of the reasons I like distraction so much now is because I don't need, I don't need to piece together anymore, for the most part, what's going on with me because I already kind of know, because I did a lot of that groundwork already. I can feel safe doing those distractions because like Autumn said, it actually can help de-escalate me. And with the, the webtoons, if I'm really, really stressed about a situation that's going on with me or that's going on in my life, 
being able to distract myself from that situation for a while by delving into a story that has nothing to do with me and just kind of being part of a different world for a while, that can de-escalate my anxiety. So to me, it's an, it's a nine out of 10. Once you have a pretty good grip on why you have anxiety and what spikes it and what actually helps calm it down, it is important towards the beginning of your journey, though, to have those moments where you actually sit with it and are uncomfortable because it is important to recognize why you are feeling them this way in this moment. That's a really, really good point. I guess distraction is the reward for having sat with it that many years. It's like, good job, you figured it out. Now you can read a webtoon or reorganize your closet, depending on your inclinations. All right, so let's go ahead and skip on to our letter E, and that is eating. I know this is going to possibly sound controversial, but the reality is, is many of us use eating and food as a coping skill for a variety of things, including anxiety. And I know I do because you get that release of endorphins and it makes me feel better or it distracts me because something is delicious and I get to eat it. And then I would say also for me with eating, it's almost a necessity because during my extremely high anxiety days, I sometimes eat four or five full meals with snacks in between and I am still hungry and I don't feel like I'm overeating, but I need that amount of intake because my anxiety is spending all of those calories. Though I do not, just to add on, recommend anxiety as a diet technique. Not worth it. It's like taking up smoking to diet. Don't do that bad, not good. Or taking up smoking to help with your anxiety because there are also people that do that. Probably not great either. <laughs> Just saying. The trade-off is lung cancer. I don't know that it's really worth it. Food for me, this one is a little bit more tricky because I, I do love food. I feel like at this point in my life, I have a pretty healthy relationship with food and relatively good body image in terms of feeling secure in myself. That, however, has not always been the case. Eating as a coping mechanism for anxiety. When we get to rating it, I will be very curious to see where Autumn puts it at because I'm actually going to put it kind of on the low side. I'm going to say a three or four out of 10. And the reason why I say that is because there are so many people that struggle with disordered eating. I had issues with that for most of my life. I'm not feeling like I have that right now, but that's not to say that it won't rear its ugly head again. There were so many times that when I was disordered eating, depending on what type of disordered eating I was doing, when I would feel really anxious, I would either eat nothing at all, and that would make my anxiety even worse because then I had nothing in my stomach and I would go into starvation mode and then my anxiety would really spike because I would feel like I was dying in some sense. Or I would eat entirely too much as a way to comfort myself. And then I would actually make myself sick because I ate too much. Or I would end up with so much shame and guilt around the amount of food that I was eating that it would cause my anxiety to spike even more. So this is really something that I am, as a coping skill for anxiety, going to put on the low end of the scale, even though it is, I, I do enjoy my comfort foods. And on days that I am feeling anxious and depressed, I will treat myself more. But where I'm at in my life right now, I can afford to do that without there being significant consequences that actually is helpful for me to allow myself to just to enjoy a special treat. It is not something that I could 
use in a healthy way as a coping skill for anxiety at nearly any other point in my life. I'm actually going to agree with with you on this one, Ivy, because I feel like when it comes to using eating as a coping skill for any mental health issue, you start walking a very, very slippery slope. And so, yes, having a nice, rewarding, delicious treat every now and again or that comfort food, not necessarily anything wrong with it. But I would probably rank this one about where you did that three out of 10, four out of 10, fairly low. I've never had disordered eating, but I really feel when you start involving your psychological and mental health issues and problems with how you consume and treat and react to food, you're really opening up a Pandora's box of potential issues. So I'm going to agree with Ivy and rank this one pretty low. So let's then go ahead and move to F, fidgeting. So this can be uh, fidget toys, you know, the little spinners that you have or the little bubble poppers. Some people play with zippers or buttons, pen clickers. If I'm really anxious in a meeting, do not give me a clicky pen. I will drive everyone in that room nuts. Or if you are like me, it can also even lead towards minor self-harm, which is the lip picking, the skin picking, the scalp picking, hair pulling even. My my absolute worst unfortunate fidget is lip picking. I chew at my lips to the point they bleed. It's part of actually how I know that I am anxious is because I start chewing on my lips so badly that they're bleeding and have scabs on them and I can go, holy shit, my anxiety is out of control. I better step in and freaking do something about this. Yeah, I would say fidgeting is a big one for a lot of people that deal with anxiety. I do fidget, but in one very specific way. And I think it is limited to one very specific way playing with my hair. And I have always done that pretty much from the time I was born. From all the stories that I've heard, I had my fingers in my hair from pretty much the moment I discovered that I had hair and I had fingers. And a lot of the times it's helpful. And then other times it actually can create a negative feedback loop. Because if I'm doing it because I'm feeling anxious, sometimes it creates a negative feedback loop because I recognize I'm playing with my hair because I'm really anxious right now. This is to self-soothe. Because if I wasn't feeling anxious right now, I wouldn't be playing with my hair the way that I am. And then I get fixated on that idea that I'm anxious and playing with my hair actually makes it worse. And then I have to force myself to stop playing with my hair. Everything you just said about fidgeting, yes, that's that's how it is for me. Because when I fidget, because I'm anxious, it is an escalating negative feedback loop. And I just get higher and higher and higher. And then the, the minor self-harm gets worse and worse and worse, which makes the anxiety go worse and worse and worse. And for that reason specifically, I am ranking fidgeting for me personally. I'm going to say a zero out of 10. Would not ever recommend because it always leads to that minor self-harm for me. And it never helps. It always makes it worse. But again, this is my personal recommendation. I understand that fidgeting is a release valve for many people. If it is, more power to you. And I am glad you have found something that works. But for me, zero out of 10. I'm going to put this one like right in the middle. I'm going to put it five out of 10 because sometimes it's helpful for me. Sometimes it's not. And also just as a general concept, I think fidgeting is one of those things that is, as a general concept, neutral. 
unless you take it to that self-harming level or you in, end up with one of those negative feedback loops, because I do know a lot of people that they fidget and it is helpful. I know a lot of people who, when they're feeling anxious, they have to keep their hands busy or they need to be up and moving or they dance something. They need to be doing something physical and I can understand that. So for some people, being able to fidget and get that energy out of their body by fidgeting is super helpful for them. So I'm going to put it right in the middle, five out of 10. Those ideas you were talking about, dancing or just getting up and moving, that is the G on our list. Get moving. And that can be, like Ivy said, dancing, just moving around, shaking, exercising. I would even say stimming to some degree. You know, when you do the rocking back and forth or you do the hand flapping, that's all in some way of getting your body moving. Now, when it comes to exercise, I am not an exercise fan. I, I feel like a dead fish flopping around. I fucking hate it. If I'm going to move, like actually like get exercise, I want to be productive. So any of my get moving usually involves splitting wood, building a shed, because that's actually helpful for me. And I will also say that I have recently started allowing myself to stim. If you grew up neurodivergent back in the day, uh, you you learned that the stimming was not really allowed. And so you may have learned to channel it into one thing or another and shut down a lot of those responses. And I've started doing the rocking or the hand flapping on occasion. And let me tell you, OMG, I did not think it was gonna make that big of a difference for me, but it so does. The rocking can be so soothing to my system. I actually really like this particular coping skill because anxiety for me does tend to be something that manifests very strongly in my body, as I was just mentioning, and it builds up so much that I get shaky. So for me, being able to get up and get moving is really important. And unlike Autumn, I actually do enjoy exercising, not all forms of it, but I do enjoy certain ones. And one of the ones that I have really gravitated to is weightlifting. It is something that requires movement and you're getting up, you're moving, but it also helps me to focus because weightlifting is something that you have to be methodical. You have to be careful with your form. It is structured. You have to be mindful of the way that you're breathing. And so it gives me something to focus on that is also very physical. I don't know if it's if it's like this for other people, but even just being able to lift heavy things kind of helps with my anxiety because I feel more, not just stronger, but I feel more just capable. And I like that feeling. And when I am feeling more capable physically, it reminds me that even when I am struggling with my mental health, I am capable in that way too. I am resilient. I am strong. I am capable I have proven this time and time and time again, and I keep getting stronger. And weightlifting is something that reminds me not only of my physical fortitude and strength, but also my mental fortitude and strength. I could definitely see that. Like some of the slower exercises aren't bad. Like I, I did used to enjoy yoga when I had the time and energy to do yoga. <laughs> I'm sure that would help my anxiety too if I took it back up. I would say get moving overall though, even though I hate exercising, I, I would still say get moving is an eight out of 10 for me. Whether it is the smaller things like the stimming or the bigger things like building a shed or splitting wood, I definitely think that getting moving really helps my anxiety. And I think part of that is because anxiety is, it is a physiological response. This is something you have in your body 
And so if you can find a way to channel that energy or release that energy, I think that's a big help. So I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to rank that one pretty high. For me, it's an absolute 10 out of 10. Getting up and getting moving is not just good for anxiety in my mind. It's good for just so many things. And I mean, honestly, the human body was designed to move. And I do think that we operate better when we keep ourselves active physically. I think that helps us physically. I think it helps us mentally and emotionally. I really love movement as a coping skill and as just a important part of life to just something to incorporate into your daily life, some degree of movement, because our bodies were not designed to be sedentary. And there is so much research that shows that exercise does help with our mental health. I would also say that in a way, we're designed for the, the next one on our list, which is that H and that's humor. We're designed to laugh or to find joy. It may not feel like it sometimes, but I do think as humans, we do seek towards pleasure. And part of pleasure is humor. It's laughing at things. It's smiling. It's cracking jokes. And as far as an anxiety coping skill, when my anxiety gets higher and higher, one of the things that happens with me is I get extremely extremely negative about everything. Nothing's going to work out. We're going to end up homeless. We're all going to die. Any solution you have is stupid because obviously here are the 438 reasons it's not going to work. That's what happens with my anxiety. And so one of the things I try to do to counter that is I will almost get aggressively positive, which is not to say I am aggressive with others or myself, but I just am determinedly positive, almost like positive out of spite. Like I'm going to be freaking happy even if the freaking world is going to freaking burn. And so I end up cracking a lot of jokes when I get anxious as, as a coping skill to keep myself from falling into doom. I personally have no sense of humor of my own. I basically have to rely on other people for their humor. I am just, I'm not a funny person. I would love to be. I am not. I have accepted this. I do love humor. I do love comedy, I, even if I am not a funny person in and of myself. I do surround myself with people that I find funny. Uh, when my anxiety is is spiking really bad and I don't have a, uh, a close connection that I can turn to for that dose of humor, my go-to, and I know it's the lowest common denominator of comedy, but I really like mindless, stupid, physical comedy. Part of it is honestly nervous laughter. If I see somebody fall or if I fall, I will laugh. And then that just, you know, laughter just makes you feel better. So I generally do turn to those mindless, stupid physical comedies when my anxiety is high because it doesn't take a whole lot of mental energy, but it does get me laughing pretty much right away. That actually makes a lot of sense, though, because I feel like we grew up with a lot of physical comedy. So it makes me wonder if our mom did this as well, because I remember watching uh, 1970s or 1980s uh, Saturday Night Live. Like one of the things that always seemed to crack up everybody in our family was pretty much any skit with Chevy Chase where he was falling down. Like even now, that's still hilarious to me for it's, no it, reason. It was, the, it was 1970s. It was the original SNL cast. And I know this because we had the box set of VHS tapes. So I still have some of those. So I know exactly what that's coming from. And yeah, I do agree with that. And I think we did pick up a lot of that from mom. And George Carlin is another one. He, he has a lot of kind of physical 
comedy, not super exaggerated in terms of falling down and stuff, but like facial expressions and body movements. And mom, when she would tell stories and jokes, she would make a lot of really exaggerated facial expressions and body movements. And so I do think that's part of where I get that from. Apparently, this is an, an intergenerational coping skill that we've been honing and passing down. <laughs> <laughs> Just laughing at people hurting themselves. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this is a whole a whole business. It's fine. It's fine. I'm actually going to rank this one kind of low and I'm only going to put this at a five out of 10. And this is for me personally. And that's because typically for me with anxiety and humor, humor is a dam. It is very rare that humor will actually break that anxiety wall and then I can start calming down. It's usually just a way for me to stop the anxiety where it is at but I am also not calming myself down at all. And so for me, this is this is a this is a mid rating. It sometimes, sometimes I can flip over and break that anxiety and loosen up and be happy-ish again. But more often than not, humor is just a damn for me. So I'm gonna say five out of ten. Okay, for me, I'm I'm gonna go higher. I'm gonna give it like a nine out of ten because I feel like it is generally beneficial for me. Uh, one caveat I am going to put here with this though. And I know some people are not going to want to hear this, but what I do not like is self-deprecating humor. And the reason why I hate it is because the words that we use actually do impact the way that we think. And even if you're just joking, you keep repeating these things about yourself, about how you're garbage or you're trash or you're clumsy, or you're ugly or you're fat or, or whatever it is that you pick at yourself for that's coming from a space of genuine insecurity that you have. And the more that you pick at it and the more you reinforce those messages to yourself, even if you're just joking, you're bullying yourself. That's, I feel like it's ultimately self-sabotaging and not beneficial. For me, that is a very insidious thing because we hide behind the idea of just joking but it's not really because the words that we use matter. How we talk about ourselves matters. How we encourage other people to talk about us because of how we talk about ourselves, that matters. I would say, I don't know if you can just say deprecating humor in general as well. Just any humor that's very much intended to harm or belittle, whether it's yourself or somebody else. That's, yeah, that's probably not going to be extremely beneficial, especially in the long term as a coping skill for anxiety or possibly much of anything else. All right, so let's go ahead and slip into the I on our list today. And that is information and planning. So some of us, when we get anxious, we want to know all the details. We want to make plans and we want to come up with strategies so that we can deal with our anxiety. And I will tell you, this is, this is probably my primary go-to coping skill for situational anxiety, where something has gone wrong. You know, a part has rattled off the car and it's going to cost $2,000 to fix. And I will, <laughs> I will aggressively snatch information out of people's heads, which can be very frustrating for my sister as well as my boyfriend, because they are both ADD and they both relay information in an ADD format, um, which is not to say anything mean about it, because normally I love the journey of any ADD storytelling because you never know where you're going to go and you never know where you're going to end up. And it's, it's a wonderful ride. But when I am anxious and I need information, 
I'm like, okay, and then what happened? Okay, and what are we planning on doing about that? And how much information do you have right now? And what about the money in your account? Can you give me the exact balance? I'm going to need that right now. And you better give me that snap, snap, snap. And I will just take it. And you'll have like part of it out. And I just almost about knock it out of your hands trying to get that information. I can attest to this. Uh, she does get pretty aggressive with her information gathering sometimes, which is the opposite of me. Uh, at least I think it is because I don't generally need much of a plan. I don't generally need a ton of information. I don't do a whole lot of this. I have routines have things that I do kind of like on a day-to-day -day basis that are important for me to incorporate, but I don't plan much and I'm not really an information gatherer and I don't need a whole lot from other people in that way. In fact, I am more prone to having anxiety spikes when people try to plan too much or they throw too much information at me because then I'm just overloaded. It's too much coming in at once. Like if I, if I go on a trip with somebody who has to have an itinerary and they have all of these things that they need to do and it has to be done in this order on this day, I am not going to have fun because there's no movement. There's no flexibility in that. And that will stress me out even more. So if anything, I think I might be the opposite of autumn. I could definitely see how that would make you feel cagey. I also recommend we never go on a vacation together, just for the record. <laughs> I love my sister, but it has never occurred to me to take a trip with her. It, going on a trip together may be the only thing that might actually do damage to our relationship. Exactly, which goes straight back to acceptance and accommodation. Part of that accommodation is knowing who not to go on a trip with. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> All right, so now as far as ranking the skill, okay, I'm going to say for, for me, information and planning is a 10 out of 10. Okay, and this is because once I have the information, and once I have a plan in place, I then go, okay, we can handle this. And by we, I mean I. And I can almost feel the anxiety just melting off of me. My anxiety will go from like a 10 almost down to a 4 once I have enough of information to understand what's happening and a plan in place to deal with it. Preferably, you know, a plan A, B, C, D, E, and F in place just in case any of them fall through. And so I would say this is 10 out of 10 for me. Though I am kind of curious how you would rank this from the different perspective, Ivy, in that I am the one stealing your information and I am the one forcing you into plans. It eases my anxiety, but uh, how would you feel this is ranked when it's inflicted on you? Uh, when somebody else is inflicting it on me, it's like a zero out of 10 um, because that shit's stressful. <laughs> Just from my own personal standpoint in my own life as a coping skill, I would say like a two out of 10, because there are very specific situations in which it actually does decrease my anxiety to have a plan of some kind. I don't need an itinerary. I don't need a schedule. I just need some basic concept of what the hell is going on, but I like a lot of flexibility. So this is like a, a two out of 10 for me in my personal life. But when it's being inflicted upon me, it's like a zero out of 10. It's just, I feel like I'm being interrogated and I'm going to be, I don't know, waterboarded or tortured in some way if I don't provide the information fast enough and if it is not pleasing to hear. <laughs> 
I, I hate to say this, but I asked Jake about this as well, because we had talked about this when we originally recorded the episode. And I was like, well, what would you rank this at? And he also gave it a zero out of 10. And I believe the words um, waterboarding, torture, interrogated were actually brought up in that conversation by him, as well as the fact of a lot of pressure to provide answers fast enough. <laughs> so just... <laughs> Jake and I are so different in some ways, and then in other ways, we sh we share like the same soul. I don't <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but that's amusing to me. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a good caveat to keep in mind if you are an anxious information gatherer or an anxious planner. Beware that it may be potentially undermining or damaging your relationships, and to take a moment to examine how you can adapt that coping skill and still have a healthy relationship. <laughs> Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to Jay. And this is Juvenile Pursuits. Kids shows, blankets, stuffed animals, toys, coloring, all those things you used to do as a kid, or if you know you had a traumatic upbringing and you weren't allowed to do those things as a kid and you always wanted to, or perhaps you were just poor as a kid and you never could play with Legos and now you have the opportunity to. But pursuing any of just those simple childish pleasures, I would say my biggest pursuit of this one is kids books, like little, little kids books and stuffed animals. So I love, for example, The Wind in the Willows. I know that's not super tiny. I also love um, Are You My Mother? <laughs> one of my favorite books. But I also love The Wind in the Willows. Just such simple little fun stories. And I also have a stuffed animal. I have a stuffed animal for various periods of my life because I feel like I have the stuffed animal and he really meets my needs at that time. And then something shifts and I'm like, you know what, mister, you're just not quite what I need anymore. And he gets retired and then I have to move on to another stuffed animal. Currently, though, I have Gerard the giraffe and he's very nice to hug. He's got a nice long neck. It's very huggable. I like Gerard. I am kind of curious, though, where your retired stuffed animals go. We don't like to talk about where the retired stuffed animals go. <laughs> that sounds ominous, I'm just going to say. <laughs> okay, it's not horrible. Okay, the first one was horrible. The first one was actually a dog squeaky toy that I really loved, and his name was Ignatius. And my husky got a hold of him, and um, he did not survive that. But since then, they get retired to the bookshelves because I feel bad about shoving them in a drawer or somewhere. So then they just sit kind of shoved into my overstuffed bookshelf collecting dust, which also isn't great, but it's not total mass destruction. So, you know, there's something. Yeah, that's actually not as bad as I was thinking when you said that we don't talk about that. That made it sound very ominous. Juvenile Pursuits, yes, uh, pretty similar to Autumn on this. Not as much with the stuffed animals. I do have stuffed animals. However, the caveat there is that all of the stuffed animals I have acquired since I have been an adult, I have acquired because Autumn has given them to me, <laughs> which is not bad. It's a, I, I do value them and I like them. And one of them is on my bed right now, but they, they are not things that I would probably collect myself. I have, on the other hand, held on to almost every single book that I had as a child. Some of them disappeared along the way during my childhood, and I don't know where they went. I suspect they were given away to other children by my mom, and I don't appreciate that. But, you know, I love my mom, so I will forgive her for that. But I have held on to most of my childhood books. I guess the childhood was not a, it was not a happy time for me, but one of the bright spots to it was escapism through stories. 
And that's why those books are so valuable to me. That's why I still hold on to them. That's why I still occasionally read them. And also a lot of the shows and movies that I watched when I was little, those also were very comforting. When I'm struggling with anxiety or with depression, just my mental health in general, the show Little Bear, and there was a series of books too. I think I only ever had one, but the TV show, it was, I think on Nickelodeon, you can still find it on YouTube and I will go on and I will watch those old episodes of Little Bear because it's just a world where essentially nothing ever goes wrong. And it's just a fairy tale world and it's in the wilderness and it's beautiful. There's no cities, there's no cars, there's no any modern technology. It's just wonderful characters who are loving and they get along and it's just sweet and there's just these magical qualities to it. And for me, when I'm feeling really anxious or I'm struggling with my mental health, almost nothing helps me feel better than delving into the world of Little Bear and just pretending for a while that the rest of the world does not exist and all of the adult worries and concerns that I have don't exist. And even my mental health struggles don't exist in that moment when I can just delve into that world and pretend for a while that I am part of it. That's really the key piece, just delving into the world and pretending for just a little while that you're a part of it, just taking that almost vacation from adulthood for a while. And I'm going to rank juvenile pursuits really high. I'm going to probably put this at a maybe a nine out of a 10, not a full 10 out of a 10, because I don't feel like it really necessarily fixes anything. But I do think it helps a lot. And I say this especially for me, um, because having had the childhood trauma, I've learned to parent myself and I've learned to be comforting and I've learned to be loving partially through these juvenile pursuits. And so it not only eases adult autumn's anxiety, it also helps get some of that trauma anxiety I get from when I was a a little, little girl, you know, that three-year-old anxiety that can rear up when it gets triggered. And so I love juvenile pursuits because I feel like it really hits a lot of different levels of anxiety, not just my normal average daily anxiety, but also the anxiety I get from my trauma. And in some ways, I would even say it helps the anxiety I get from my autism as well. I think honestly, for me, this one's a 10 out of 10. As you grow into adulthood, our society tries to rip those things away from you. And you're not a child anymore. You're an adult. You need to act like it. And while, yes, to a certain degree, that is true. Once you become an adult, you have all of these responsibilities. And there's all of these things that now you have to be cognizant of and aware of and responsible for. But that should not mean that we have to give up those things that brought us joy and comfort and actually helped us when we were younger. Those things are not necessarily bad. A lot of those things are actually quite healthy and have been shown to actually help us relax as adults, too. That's why adult coloring books became such a popular thing for a while. The soothing quality that that has to help us recenter and focus and balance and relax, that is not exclusive to childhood. So to me, these juvenile pursuits, I would say like a, a 10 out of 10, unless it is completely consuming your life and it is making it so that you do not take care of any of your adult responsibilities and you are not just childlike, but childish, Unless that is happening and it's actually stunting your growth and maturity as an adult, I actually think that these are very helpful, healthy coping skills that we should hold on to and not allow society to strip away from us. Hell yeah to all that. Do not let people strip these away from you. You are never too old for a stuffed animal or coloring book. Never. 
too old. All right, let's go ahead and go to our K on today's list, and that is kinesthetics. And this is all about really focusing in on the body and how it is holding itself and the tension and where you're holding the tension. So this may include things such as hot showers, massages, um, intentional relaxation or breath work. For me, uh, breath work has been an absolute lifesaver. I, I don't know if I'd still be alive without breath work, honestly, because I learned to take that deep breath and release it. And then with that, learn to allow the tension to seep out of my body because anxiety often is something we feel in our bodies. And if we are super disconnected from them, that anxiety in the body is going to keep building, 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 and it will escalate our emotional feelings of anxiety. And so kinesthetics, breath work, I think are absolutely vital coping skills when it comes to anxiety because you've got to address that body piece at some point, somehow. I got to admit, anytime I hear breath work, I cringe. I personally hate breath work. It's something that I've had to do to a certain degree in therapy. It's something that I now am having to do quite a bit of for my concussion recovery. And I still hate it. It's not something that I think I will ever enjoy. It honestly stresses me out more. I don't understand how it actually helps other people relax. I understand theoretically why it should and why it's supposed to work and how it's supposed to work. I do not like it and it actually spikes my anxiety if I only do breath work. Part of the reason why I do enjoy weightlifting and also why I enjoy singing is because it incorporates breath work in such a way that I can kind of tuck it in there and it's I'm still doing it, but I'm focused primarily on some other aspect and so I can deal with it. But when I just have to do focused breath work, oh my God, it stresses me out so much and it makes my anxiety so much worse and I get really restless. As far as kinesthetics go, I do, however, love things like hot showers. I even enjoy massages. Uh, yoga tends to, to help. And then focused relaxation work. You kind of body check and you, you know, tense up your whole body and then starting from your head and moving all the way down to your toes, you relax everything. That does help me. Uh, and I do try to make a habit of doing that. However, I still run into a little bit of a hiccup with that. And it is the weirdest thing because I'll be going through the whole process and I'll think that I get everything relaxed. And then a few minutes later, I realize that, that my butt cheeks are clenched. So I'm not entirely sure what that's about. A lot of people, they tend to clench their jaw. Apparently, I clench my butt cheeks. So I've got glutes of steel because my anxiety is apparently stored in my ass. <laughs> is it is it like a training could you like do that like a buns of steel anxiety video how to channel your anxiety <laughs> into rock hard glutes can we do that i i don't know like i wouldn't even know how to tell anybody how to do that because it's not like i'm actively trying that's not what's going on i'm i'm just squeezing my butt cheeks <laughs> on a regular basis and i don't know why <laughs> uh, unfortunately i mostly just grind my jaw which I guess my neck is really buff. It feels like it's going to snap my spine most of the time. So, you know, though, overall, though, with this coping scale kinesthetics, I am going to say this is a 10 out of 10 with the caveat that you have to find something that's going to work with you. Like I said, I really feel that you have got to focus at some point 
on the body, on the physical sensations that come with anxiety and find a way to release that from the body for your health to help reduce the anxiety, to continue coping, to continue moving forward and dealing with the onslaught of anxiety that occurs every day. But like Ivy said, with breath work, it drives her insane and it spikes her anxiety. So that's not going to work. So she's got to find something that works for her, just like I had to find something that works for me. Kinesthetics, definitely a 10 out of 10. You've got to find something that will work for you, though. It's like a 3 out of 10 for me, because a lot of the things that fit into this category are things that I struggle with in one way or another. So I have a very conflicted relationship with kinesthetics in the sense that it does have benefits and I recognize those benefits and I have felt some of those benefits, but it's also not something that I, for the most part, actively enjoy. And it's something that I've had to work at quite hard to actually find something that fits for me and that I can do on a consistent basis and turn into a practice. So speaking of coping skills that you've really got to find one specific under that umbrella that works for you, I feel our L on the list is similar to that, and that is let it out. So this could be angry music, screaming, swearing, screaming swear words, wrestling, talking, finding basically a pressure valve for the anxiety. My big thing is pressure of speech. This really comes up with my social anxiety. A lot of people think I'm a very social person. That's because my anxiety causes me to have verbal diarrhea. And luckily, I'm good at that. And so people think I'm really smart and friendly. But honestly, I'm just anxious out of my fucking mind. <laughs> I also enjoy screaming swear words, though I'm pretty sure my neighbors don't enjoy that because that echoes really good around the hills. I do like cussing. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I guess the only other one for me is, is kind of like angry music. I don't generally like rock music or metal or even most rap, because there's something that's very abrasive to me from an auditory standpoint. I don't have anything against those genres. It's just, it kind of grates on me and it makes me feel more anxious. But if I reach a peak of anxiety where anger is the motivating force behind that anxiety, it's pretty much the only time that I will listen to things like rock or metal or rap because it does bring out that anger and it does spike my anxiety, but it's almost release like a pressure valve that I actually do need sometimes. But that's pretty much the only time I actually listen to that type of music is when my anxiety is anger based and I really do need to let off steam. I don't know that I ever really listen to super angry music. I feel like <laughs> the height of angry music is uh, Alanis Morissette, You Oughta Know for me. So, and then when I start actually listening to heavier stuff, which if you're wondering what is heavier stuff, Autumn, that's probably like corn, which I'm sure is not heavy at all to most people, but that's super heavy <laughs> rock to me. And I'm like, oh my God, this is too much. This is too angry. I can't do this. I, I have to agree with you. I feel somewhat similar to that. I am a baby when it comes to like hard rock or metal. I cannot stand anything where it sounds like they're screaming in, instead of singing. I can't handle it. It's very, very abrasive to me. Again, nothing against those genres. I'm not saying they're horrible or terrible or they have no value or whatever. Music is a very subjective thing. People's taste in music is very subjective and music is very helpful for people overall in different ways. So whatever genre floats your boat, good for you. I don't like the screaming either. I think that's because I'm super sensitive. And when people get angry, I'm like, are you angry at me? 
what did I do wrong? I don't even know you. You live in Los Angeles <laughs> somewhere. Why are you yelling at me? What can I do to make you feel happier? <laughs> um, I will say let it out. I, I'm going to rank this one pretty high. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this at an 8 out of 10 because I do think we all need a little pressure valve. This isn't like that full release. It's just a way to let a little steam off so you can keep from exploding. But I will say 8 out of 10 because there is that possibility that Sometimes when you try to let it out, it ends up escalating instead. So most part good, potential to go overboard. So I'm going to go 8 out of 10 on this one. I'm actually going to go pretty low on this one. I'm going to go 4 out of 10. This is one that I struggle with because a lot of times, this only happens for me when I'm also feeling anger. Not just anxiety, but anger that's underlying that anxiety. I am still relatively new to coping with anger or even acknowledging anger as a thing that I am capable of feeling. It's something that I have had a lot of fear and shame and guilt about my entire life. And so since I still have a very conflicted relationship with it, and because I also, if I really let go and let it out completely in I was not trying to keep some sort of control over it like a grasping clenching rigid control over it I've never been able to completely let it out and so since I'm relatively early on in this part of my mental health journey and my healing journey this one is pretty low on the scale for me as far as dealing with my anxiety because I don't trust myself and I don't really know yet how to process anger and this particular coping skill only comes up when i am also feeling angry on top of feeling anxious so it feels unsafe to me currently that's a pretty good point that i think it really does depend where you're at on your journey especially with your emotions if you're going to let it out because that letting it out really does speak to that emotional release piece that helps with the anxiety and so if you're not advanced level with that or not sure of it yet that one can be a little scary Let's go ahead and slip on to our M on our list today, which is medications and supplements. So this can be prescription medications, dietary supplements, you know, your herbs, your herbal tea. It can be a whole range of things, but essentially it's some sort of substance that you take to help chemically reduce your anxiety. For a lot of people I know out there, marijuana is a, a big one that gets used a lot for anxiety. Uh, my go-to is usually Skullcap. I'm a big, big fan of the adaptogens. It usually takes a while to find one that will work for you. I have a friend that swears by passionflower. That is her absolute go-to. Other people catnip. Some of them do hops. Um, we'll actually put a resource up on some of those adaptogen anxiety herbs. I am also more of a supplement type of person. I have a very specific regimen that I take every day that I put together over time that addresses not just my anxiety, but my depression and my bipolar imbalances and all of that. And it works together cohesively. I take 15 different supplements every day. I guess for anxiety specifically, the two that are probably the most helpful are magnesium. And this one I don't take all the time. I only take it in extreme circumstances. I would have taken some tonight, but I'm actually out of it, is GABA. The reason why I don't take it all the time is because it has such a strong effect on me that it kind of puts me down for the count. So if I am feeling a really bad anxiety spike and to the point where I'm almost at panic attack level, I will take a GABA and within 30 minutes, I am really zen. But the downside is, is that 
I'm so zen, like I am sleepy and I pretty much am non-functional for the, for the rest of the day. I don't think most people respond to GABA quite that strongly, but for me, it's a very instantaneous impact and it's very, very effective. I feel like once you start playing around and you find one that works for you, that's about what it does. So a lot of times, yeah, I've even heard that with the anti-anxiety medication that when you do find one that works, it makes you so zen, it's really hard to function. But even with that, I would rank medications and supplements at a 10 out of 10. For me personally, that's because I feel like without the skull cap, I would have had so much more pain. I would have gotten so many more headaches. I would have had so much more tension, so many more panic attacks, because sometimes all my coping skills, they don't work or my anxiety escalates so fast that I don't have time to calm it down. And so I need that instant go to this is going to work release button. Now, as far as ranking this for anybody else, I cannot do that because I feel like medications and supplements are a very, very personal choice. And there should be no judgment whatsoever on whether you choose or choose not to take any medication or any supplement for your mental health. I'm pretty much on board with you. I, for me, it's definitely a 10 out of 10 supplements. And I would also say the dietary lifestyle changes that I made between those two things. Oh, I, I feel like I am a very different person in a lot of ways than I was before I started taking supplements and removing trigger foods from my diet and all of that. It's been completely life-changing for me, but I agree with Autumn that this is something that is very, very personal. It's what you feel like you need to do for you. I personally have chosen not to go the psychiatric medication route. Supplements were a better route for me, but it could very much be the opposite for somebody else, or there may be other people who feel like both of those things are not workable options for them. So yeah, 10 out of 10 for me, but I'm not even going to begin to rate it for anybody else. All right. And so with the letter M, we end the first part of this. And since we honestly both cannot remember what part two sounds like when it starts out or at all, this should be a fun, hard transition into the letter N. I have a feeling it will be jarring. I do apologize. All right. Excellent. So with that, the letter N nature. So this is getting outside, getting some fresh air, getting away from people, or maybe even bringing some of the outside in with some house plants or the like. When it comes to nature for me, I'm both yes and no. I, I love nature. I dislike being uncomfortable. And that's why I despise camping for this reason. Because when you go camping, yes, you're in nature, but... You're sleeping on a crappy mattress and there are grasshoppers in your tent and it's really hot and there's no fan and it takes like four hours longer to try to cook on really shitty devices with horrible pans. So no, no, I do not like that. But I do like being in the outdoors. So I ended up just moving to nature. So I have my entire house with all my belongings and my comfortable mattress, but in a rural area. I, it worked pretty well for my anxiety. I would also like to live closer to nature because right now I live near a major metropolitan area and it's awful. I don't understand how city people are city people. I thought I would be one and I am not. I think though, even if I lived someplace rural, I would still go camping because I actually really, really love it. Calvin and I go camping all the time and it is one of my absolute favorite things in the whole world. We go camping, we go off-roading, we go hiking, we do all of that stuff and I love all of it. I just enjoy the experience and I love all the cool places that we get to go to that most other people don't get to see because they're difficult to access and you have to have a vehicle that's capable of getting there and then it's just so peaceful. And we always see so many cool things when we go to because that's 
part of nature for me is all of the cool things that I get to see. It's like the one time I'm actually detail-oriented. I'm always looking for interesting little things, no matter what I'm feeling. Going out into nature definitely makes it feel better, but that is especially true of my anxiety, since a lot of my anxiety comes from having to live too close to other people and all of the sensory overload that comes with that kind of proximity to a city. I would say that also part of the anxiety relief from nature for you sounds like it also comes from some mindfulness, from being able to be out there and be focused in the moment like you just can't do in the city or in your apartment. That's definitely part of it for me. I'm not a huge fan of like meditation, but I do find benefit in mindfulness and mindfulness practices are easier for me in nature. Maybe it's because I'm autistic. Maybe it's because I have sensory issues or maybe I'm an empath or it goes into my PTSD or maybe it's just me. But I would say getting away from people is a really huge one that helps a lot for my anxiety. Even just living further away from people, so much more amazing. I live in the least populated half of the fourth least populated state in the U.S. And I can feel the difference, literally feel the absence of humanity. And it helps my anxiety so much. For this one, I am definitely going to say 8 out of 10 recommend nature. As long as it's nature on my terms and I'm not forced into it and it doesn't disrupt my routine or break my back. It's a 10 out of 10 for me. I am very much a, a nature person and I, I just, I love all of it. I love all of it so much. There are so many cool things that come with camping and off-roading and hiking and just all of this stuff. So 10 out of 10, absolutely would recommend. But if you're somebody, obviously, that doesn't really enjoy nature all that much, probably just want to stick to, I guess, like city parks and stuff like that. There's still cool things there that don't require you to be out on hiking trails, getting sweaty or sleeping in tents with a lot of, <laughs> with a lot of mosquitoes. I know it's not for everybody. I'll hang out with the mosquitoes. Mosquitoes don't actually like me that much anyway. So it's it, it works out all right for me. You're very lucky. And you could also just get a house plant or like a cactus or something, I guess, bring some nature in if you don't want to go out. Okay, so let's go on to O, organizing and cleaning. And this is just what it sounds like. It's a lot of us that have anxiety when we get it, it helps to organize and clean things. If you've listened to the podcast at all, I do not like cleaning. <laughs> I detest cleaning. It is, it is one of my most hated things. But I will say when my anxiety gets heightened, especially when it's tied into uh, my sensory issues, I have to clean because there's too much going on. There's too much clutter. There's too much sensory input and I will lose my fucking shit if I do not clean and organize my environment. It is an absolute must. And usually this is not a time you want to be around me cleaning because it's not pleasant. This is almost a desperate need cleaning where I am flinging and going and fleeing and it's, it's not pretty. But when I get through with the little tornado, it does drop my anxiety because it does help lessen that sensory input for me. Uh, I love cleaning. That is something I routinely do to help with my anxiety. And when things start to get cluttered or dirty, that spikes my anxiety. So I have a lot of incentive to keep things clean. But when I'm feeling really anxious and I've done all the cleaning that I can do, I will then resort to unnecessary levels of organization. I will clear out everything in our little pantry type area and I'll clean all the shelves and I'll get rid of things or I'll combine packages of things that go closely enough together and I organize everything according to like what type of food it is and expiration dates and I obscene amounts of organization. It's totally unnecessary levels and I will find things to organize. I will admit I've got like that ADHD thing of like every everything can look like nice and clean in the, the main areas, but I guarantee there is always 
always a cabinet or a closet somewhere that is a shit show. So when I'm feeling super anxious, I will find all of the shit shows and I will clean them up. That's amazing that you're willing to delve into that. I will say I do enjoy organizing small things that don't require a lot of effort, like the silverware drawer. Love organizing the like all of the spoons are in their slot and all of the forks are in their spot. I do get a kick out of that. <laughs> Overall, I would say for organization and cleaning, the concepts thereof, 10 out of 10. Actually having to do it that that's going to be more of a two out of 10 for me. Not not great. The process, no. The end result, yes. I mean, obviously for me, it's going to be a 10 out of 10. I just enjoy the entire process. It, it just brings me so much joy. All right. So let's go ahead and slip into P or maybe we should put this one off for a little bit because P is all about procrastination. Like it or not, a lot of us who have anxiety we procrastinate because scenarios make us anxious. A lot of things make us anxious. And one of the things that we really want to do is avoid things that make us anxious. So we procrastinate. I'm going to let Ivy talk about this one first because she's she's a little bit better at the art of procrastination than I am. Oh man, I, I don't know that I would call it an art. It is, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I both love it and hate it because the way that I ultimately end up getting a lot of things done is to procrastinate until it absolutely must get done. And then I'll have a, a two or three just insanely productive days where I get it all done at once, which that part is kind of nice that I just have those few days where I get it done all the stuff that I don't want to do. And it's just like, I feel a sense of accomplishment at the end of those days. So that part's nice. The bad part about it is that leading up to those productive days, procrastinating makes me steadily and progressively more anxious. And I feel all sorts of guilt and shame about the things that I'm not getting done. The, the initial stages of procrastination, when the deadline is not there and things have not stockpiled because you just had those productive days, those first few days of procrastination, those are glorious. They feel really, really nice because nothing feels pressing and you don't have to feel guilty about anything because it's just like this tiny stuff that needs to be done. It's not that important and you can kind of feel chill and relaxed. But that that middle ground, that transitionary period between the I'm fine, that can wait to the no, this has to be done now, you lazy sack of shit. That, that period of time sucks. So I have a very a very complicated relationship with procrastination. <laughs> I could see that. I would say a lot of people on the ADHD spectrum have a a probably not so great relationship with procrastination. I, I would say complicated is a good word for that. That that feeling you were talking about of you need to do this now, you sack of shit, is how I feel about every single tiny thing always in my life that I need to do, which is why I don't procrastinate that much. But what that leads to is constant anxiety over absolutely everything that has to be done. So it's like if a fork is in the sink, my mind's like, there's a fork in the sink. There's a fork in the sink. The fork needs to be washed. We need to wash the fork. We need to wash the fork. The fork needs to be washed constantly. It will not shut up. And so you have to go deal with the goddamn fucking fork to get your mind to shut up. But the problem is with that is I'm constantly jumping from one thing to another thing to another thing to another thing to ease the anxiety over every single stimulation that gets into my world which obviously is overwhelming because I do not have the resources to deal with every single stimulation. And so I just felt overwhelmed all 
the time. And so that's why I call it the art of procrastination, because I'm actually learning to procrastinate, to put things off, to deal with some of this more minor anxiety so that I can have lulls and times where I am not forced productive. I feel like I was constantly at a level six anxious about all tasks, but now some days I have a level three and other days a level seven or eight. And yes, the seven or eight is more annoying, but that level three Oh, that's so nice. I hadn't had that before, before I procrastinated. <laughs> and that's why, for this reason, I, I'm going to give procrastination, I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. It's not a great tool, but I think that if you can learn to wield it, which I'm still trying to learn to wield it, it can have some benefits. I think it can have disastrous consequences, but I think it could also have some benefits. You know, you are actually much more accepting and forgiving of the of the procrastination, which makes sense considering your circumstances and, and how you normally operate. I am going to do something a little unorthodox here. I am going to rate it both a 10 out of 10 and a 1 out of 10, because depending on where I'm at in that cycle and process, I feel very differently about procrastination because sometimes I really love it and sometimes it makes me fucking hate myself. <laughs> so, and there's like, there, there is no finding a middle ground. It's like, oh, I could rate it a five, but that would suggest I am neutral about it. No, I am incredibly conflicted. So it is both a 10 out of 10 and a one out of 10, depending on the day and how long I've been procrastinating for and what things need to get done that have not gotten done. I feel that is a fair and very accurate rating, Ivy. Very, very accurate. Okay, so let's go ahead and switch up to Q for quiet. And this is about quieting your life and quieting your environment and just trying to dull some of that noise that comes in, whether that's literal noise or whether that's stress or whether that's demands on your resources. And honestly, this has this has been a goal of my life. So when other little girls were planning their weddings and, you know, their houses and their little families and their careers when they were 12, or 13, I was trying to plan my retirement where I was going to live north of the Arctic Circle in a cabin miles and miles from any other person with no demands on me. I hadn't quite figured out how I was going to do that. I'm still working towards that, honestly. <laughs> but I, I will say that is a goal I've been working towards my whole life. And every step I get closer to that goal, the better my life is and the better my anxiety is. The quiet is super important for me with my anxiety, too. I, I don't know that I want to be quite as isolated as you are, but pretty close. In the meantime, I like going out into nature because nature is also generally pretty quiet. Or if you if there is noise, it's like birds or water and that's fine. I'm cool with that. I just spend a lot of time alone as much as possible and I try to stay home as much as possible because while I cannot completely control the noise living in an apartment complex, I, I can control it to a certain degree where I can feel a little bit more comfortable. And I, I'm also really glad that my boyfriend is as independent as I am because I really do thrive having alone time and having quiet time where I can control the amount of noise that's going into my ear holes. 
That exactly. Controlling the amount of noise is such a big thing. I I would rank this one a 10 out of 10. I will give the caveat that if you are an extrovert or one of those people that enjoys sensory input, like if you like raves, which is beyond my comprehension that someone could enjoy that, this particular coping skill may not be great for you. But if you are introverted, if you are on that easily sensorily overwhelmed spectrum, oh my God, 10 out of 10. I'm going to actually give it an 8 out of 10. I love it. It's wonderful. It's amazing. But the reason I'm not giving it a 10 out of 10 or a 9 out of 10 is because in some ways it does limit you. My social circle is not very big. I'm very selective about what sorts of work I do. So there's some ways in which needing that amount of quiet can actually be quite limiting. Most of the time I don't care. Sometimes I do feel the impact of that. So to me, it's an eight out of 10 because it is wonderful and amazing, but sometimes I feel a little bit too reliant on it. And I feel like there are some consequences that come with that reliance on quiet. I suppose it is accurate. I have sacrificed a good portion of life for my quiet, but I am at peace with this. My soul, my soul is quiet with my sacrifices for quiet. So let's go on to our routine. So this is very soothing for me because being autistic, oh, I love routine. (laughs) It's so amazing. When I was younger, I actually did not like routine, or at least I thought I didn't like routine. I thought I really hated it. But part of that was because I was so imbalanced in every way, shape and form that routine really felt impossible to me and it felt really restrictive. Now that I've calmed my mind enough that I could start incorporating, you know, daily routines and rituals and having a specific regimen and everything, I grudgingly started to do it and ultimately As much as I thought I hated it and as much as I thought I was going to hate it, I have come to a space where I actually really love my daily routines and my rituals. I try not to get too rigid about it because I can have a tendency to do that. My mind says from the viewpoint of anxiety, if you don't follow your routine to the T, things are going to turn out to be awful and your entire day will be screwed up and then you'll fall off the the tracks and then everything will go haywire and you'll be crazy again. That is unreasonable. That's just anxiety talking. But I do have to be careful not to get too rigid. The rituals that I have, the daily little things that I do are very centering and grounding for me. And it makes me feel like, one, I have some control, which does help with the anxiety. And also there are things that at this point I don't even really have to think about. I'm just operating, or I can just operate on autopilot with them. It's pretty calming for my anxiety to not have to worry about those things because there is a system and a process. And all I have to do is follow that system. And a lot of things are taken care of. That is the absolute number one reason why I love routine. Because without a routine, I have to worry about literally everything, everything that needs to be done and everything that could possibly happen. With the routine, there's expectations in place. There's boundaries in place. Things will automatically get taken care of, like you said. And so my anxiety just drops wonderfully low with routines. Well, as wonderfully low as it can drop for me anyways. So I would say as far as routines go overall, definitely 10 out of 10 for me. Highly recommend. Like Ivy said, once you get the swing of it, once you can get yourself balanced to the point that you can accomplish those routines, they are amazing. I'm going to say an 8 out of 10. I do love it. 
But like I said, I can have the tendency to become rigid with it and lose the flexibility to be able to be more spontaneous. And I don't think that part has been particularly good for me. It hasn't been super detrimental. I can manage it pretty well. But having that tendency towards rigidity has in some ways, I think, handicapped me a little bit. Okay, I will agree with that. That rigidity has in many ways handicapped me because I have had some losses from that. But again, this is one of those acceptance pieces for me. It was a trade-off and I I freely gave up my spontaneity for the safety and comfort of my routines. Let's slip into S with that idea of safety and comfort and talk about sensory care. So this is cozy blankets, um, meeting your sensory need, things that feel good on your skin or smell good to you. Just that idea of taking care of what's coming into your senses. Honestly, for me, because I am so hypersensitive, one of my biggest pieces of sensory care is almost sensory deprivation, reducing aggravating fabrics that touch me, reducing aggravating light, reducing aggravating noise. Much of my life is designed to calm my senses. If I could be in a sensory deprivation chamber, I, I think I would enjoy that. I can see the appeal of that. I mean, I'm also pretty prone to sensory overload. I think we kind of joked about this in one other episode of the podcast. I can't remember which one, but Autumn and I talked about, you know, our differences in viewing winter. I think it might have been our Winter Whispers episode. And Autumn likes the cold because she can layer up and she can put all of these clothes on and it makes her feel all comforted and, you know, surrounded. And I hate that. There are few things I hate more than having to wear a bunch of layers of clothing. And apparently I have been like that since I was a baby. My mom always said that it, even when it was frigidly cold outside, they'd get me all dressed, they'd put me in the car, and somehow within the first five, ten minutes of being in the car, I'd be practically naked. I do not like wearing a lot of clothing and being bundled up because it's a sensory thing for me. My movement is restricted. I, I don't like the the way that the pressure feels on my skin of the clothing and it's like uneven pressure. I A lot of times I don't like most fabrics. Just everything about it feels really uncomfortable for me. I don't like running around completely naked either. That also feels weird to me. I'm not saying it's weird. I'm saying it feels physically weird to me. That's why I don't like doing it. But I like to be as minimally dressed as I possibly can. That That's one of the biggest things for the taking care of my sensory stuff for me is just making sure that my clothing is comfortable and as minimal as possible <laughs> without being completely naked. <laughs> I, I agree with the comfortable, but not necessarily minimal as possible. And I, I laugh a little bit at this because the more anxious I get, the more clothes I want on. Yes, it is a sensory issue, but I am extremely picky about my clothing. But the more anxious I get, the more clothes I need because clothes are like a shield against the world. They will protect me somehow. It's almost like, um, you know, when you were a little kid and the monsters were under the bed, but if you hid all of your parts under the blanket, the monsters couldn't get you. Sometimes that's how I feel about clothes, like their protection against the monsters. And so if I can layer more of and more of them on me, I can protect myself against more and more of the monsters. <laughs> See, and I feel, I feel like if I wear too many clothes, I am now more vulnerable to the monsters because my movement is restricted and also there's more fabric for them to latch onto. I feel like either they're going to grab hold of my clothes and drag me under the bed or I'm going to be trying to run out the door and my belt loop will get caught on the doorknob or something. <laughs> more clothes do not make me feel safer. <laughs> 
Okay, so I won't lie, that has happened where my clothing has actually gotten caught on doorknobs and doorways on multiple <laughs> occasions. So, the point. <laughs> Over, overall, though, whatever your sensory needs are, again, I this one, I'm going to recommend a 10 out of 10 because, again, we store so much of our anxiety in our bodies and anything we can do to help our bodies calm down is gonna help release that anxiety. But again, that means finding what's going to sensorily work for you. I'm also gonna give this one a 10 out of 10. I, and partially because I feel like this is not just a recommended thing. I almost feel like this is at the point where it's necessary, especially if you have if you are prone to sensory overload. But I think even people that aren't making sure that your sensory needs are taken care of, even if that means that you need more sensory input, I feel like it's a really fundamental and necessary part of good daily functioning is making sure that your sensory needs are seen too. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to tea touch. For me, touch is a, a very fine line. I, I need touch and I need hugs and I need cuddling in order to calm myself, to keep myself at a low anxiety. But there's a very fine line at which point I will get too escalated and that switch flips almost instantly and touch is unsafe and it's too much and it's sensually overwhelming. And if you are in a six foot bubble of me, I am extremely aggravated and irritated with you. This is something my boyfriend actually has to, has to kind of be more cognizant of because like I said, that switch is instant. Sometimes I will be in the middle of a hug with him trying to calm down, but it's not calming me fast enough and I escalate and all of a sudden this is way too much and I just have to burst almost out of that hug because now I'm overwhelmed by it. Oh, touch is hard for me. As I'm sure you know, if you've listened to previous episodes of the podcast, it gets brought up a lot how touch aversive I am. However, that being said, I do recognize that touch is a fundamental human need. As far as receiving touch, there is only one acceptable human on the planet for me to receive touch from and that is my romantic partner that is how i have always operated and that is particularly true in my current relationship i am not usually a super cuddly person that has been different with calvin for whatever reason he and i are just we are very touchy-feely with each other which is kind of odd for us both but snuggling with him cuddling with him having just touch even if it's just holding his hand is so helpful for me with my anxiety no matter how spiked my anxiety is just curling up on the couch with him helps so much now animals are a different story i love me some animals i will snuggle with some animals all day but if you are not calvin <laughs> you're not my romantic partner don't fucking touch me just say i will touch you if you, <laughs> i will touch you if you pay me too which sounds horrible <laughs> but i promise it's legit I will let Autumn hug me. It is uncomfortable for me, but I will let her do it because she, I know she needs that and it's important to her. And I feel the same way with my other friends who are touchy-feely. Uh, but it's it, it's not something that like I really seek out and enjoy. So when it comes to that, I do have a slightly whitey circle, but I do agree I am extremely picky about who I touch because uh, like random strangers or acquaintances or coworkers, even most people you would consider friends, I, I'm not touchy with them either. It's got to be very intimate acquaintances. And yes, on the animals, I will snuggle me some dog or some kitty like nobody's business. <laughs> I would say touch 
is really a five out of 10. And it's not necessarily because I'm neutral, but more because it can go either way uh, when it comes to anxiety. It's really going to depend on where that anxiety is driving from, your relationship with the person, uh, where your sensory needs are at. To me, it's a seesaw. Touch is really a seesaw. So I'm putting it at a five out of 10. You know, I'm honestly surprised here that I'm going to give it a higher rating than you because that's not what I would have expected. I'm going to give it a seven out of 10 because with my romantic partner or with sweet, cute, fuzzy animals like Autumn's cat, which is staring at me, I love that. And it's very helpful and it's very wonderful. And also, I do think it is a necessary thing. I do believe that humans need touch. Whether we are touch aversive or not, I, I do feel like touch is something that we all need. There are some you know, positive things there for me, but at the same time, I am still really touch aversive with most people. So as necessary as I think it is, and as much as I love that physical touch with my partner, I could never give touch a 10 out of 10 because I just, I am not a touchy feely person as a rule. And with most other people, if they touch me, I'm going to feel more anxious. Let's go ahead and skip on over to you. And you is for using it. So this means taking your anxiety and wielding it for purposes, good or evil, I suppose. I use my anxiety to get shit done. I, I honestly don't believe that anything in my life would get done without anxiety. Housework, going to work, getting maintenance done on the car, all of this stuff happens because I am anxious about it. And I have I have spent decades learning how to channel my anxiety into productivity that is at probably astoundingly frightening levels to most other people. But I get some motherfucking shit done because I am anxious and I learned how to use it. I mean, I pretty much feel the same way about this. Honestly, if, if I did not have anxiety, I probably would procrastinate indefinitely and nothing that needs to get done would get done. I, I would, pro without anxiety, and guilt too. <laughs> but with, without those two things, I probably wouldn't do anything that didn't give me a happy little dopamine hit because anxiety is, is what compels me into action on doing the tedious, awful things that nobody wants to do. So without anxiety, it just would never get done. I would just spend all of my time, I don't know, going out in nature and frolicking with the frogs and I don't know, reading webtoons. That's, that's probably all I would do. <laughs> It does make me wonder about other people. Like, are there people out there that are actually motivated, like just naturally towards doing the things they need to do in life? Or is this just a common denominator again amongst humanity that anxiety is pretty much the oil that lubricates the machine? I do wonder sometimes. I think there are people that actually are motivated without anxiety per se. I don't think that they're just motivated for the sake of being motivated, though. I feel like there's always something else. It's like money is motivating them or there, there's always something else. I don't know that people exist who are just motivated as a state of being. That seems like it would be <laughs> foreign and odd concept. Hey, but if you're listening and you are somebody who is motivated as a state of being, if you're motivated for the sake of motivation, let us know. But I'm guessing... Nobody listening to this episode will be one of those people 
because otherwise, why would you be listening to a rate and review of anxiety coping skills? I was kind of wondering the same thing. I'm like, wow, you're that motivated. You're just listening to random things out in the universe. Okay, so so when it comes to using it, I would 10 out of 10 recommend this if if you know how to do it. And this is, again, it's one of those things that takes years and years of skills and practice because if you're not careful, the anxiety will run away from you and what you're trying to do will just get, oh, it'll get demolished like nobody's business. You will just screw it up. So it's a 10 out of 10 when you know what you're doing, but when you're starting out uh, learning how to use it, this is more a two out of 10. It, it's, an, it's an extreme learning curve. I'm gonna say a five out of 10 because yes, it could go either way. I feel like it's something that you could use for, for good or for evil. So I'm gonna put it in the neutral range and you guys figure out what you're gonna do with it. I, I kind of want to see what anxiety wielded for evil purposes looks like. I'm kind of curious about that now. <laughs> Actually, no. I think that's where most political fascists come from. So never mind. I don't want to see what anxiety wielded <laughs> for evil purposes looks like. I take that yeah. back. I rescind that. Yeah, no, that's that is very true, because if you look at a lot of uh, our dictators in the past, very anxious people, you cannot tell me that Hitler was not an anxious dude or Stalin. Some real anxious motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. OK, so let's uh, let's go ahead and move on to V. And V is for vices and the avoidance thereof. So this is all about giving up and avoiding and abstaining from all those things that are bad for you and you know you shouldn't do anyways. This could be caffeine, this could be alcohol, this could be not sleeping enough, sleeping too much, too much salt, too much sugar. All of those things that we like to indulge in, even if it's just every now and again. And we know they're bad for us, but for those of us with anxiety, they can be almost crippling for us. I've never been able to do caffeine. It gives me the jitters like nobody's business and I am an anxious, freaked out mess. So that got given up a long, long time ago. And then sugar, I've had to give that up. There's so many things I avoid. Anymore, my biggest indulgence is sleep and salt. They, they don't cause me anxiety that I'm aware of. Oh God, I hope they don't. I don't want to give up my sleep and my salt. I want to say it might be possible that salt could depending on how it impacts like your blood pressure and stuff <laughs> but i don't lies. know lies I may, I may just be speaking out of my ass here i i don't know i mean i also hope that those things don't cause anxiety because those are also things that i enjoy the biggest vice that i recently gave up was coffee since the car accident the concussion that I got, of course, it messes with all of your body's systems, seems like, including mood. So even though for a few years now I'd been holding on to a pretty stable mood and knew what I needed to do to bring things back into balance and things were going pretty good. And then I got a brain injury and my brain doesn't know how to work quite right. So my anxiety has been higher since the accident and my irritability has also been higher since the accident. So I had to give up coffee. I mean, I didn't have to give it up, but it was probably a good idea to give it up. I have not completely given up caffeine, but I have drastically decreased the amount of it that I take in. 
I don't know if I will maintain this or not, even once I'm fully recovered. I think I might, though, because as much as I love the taste of coffee and I really liked the routine aspect, like that ritualistic aspect of having that be part of my day, I think ultimately I am kind of better off without it. I have switched to green tea, which in terms of flavor, I don't like as much. But in terms of the energy boost that it gives me and everything, I actually do feel better. I had to give up one of my favorite vices. It is sad, but it will all be for the better in the long run. It's already positively impacted my mood, so that's a good thing. I like how you say it's already positively impacted my mood, and that is a good thing in such a sad voice because I feel like that completely summarizes this idea. <laughs> I mean, to, to be fair, it's... Part of that is it's it's been a long day and my brain fatigues more easily than it used to. So I'm running on fumes and I'm real happy we're getting towards the end of our alphabet here. <laughs> well, for me, it's it, and that's part of what I'm going to rank this like a seven out of ten because giving up <laughs> sugar has made such amazing impacts in my life. Don't get me wrong. It's amazing. But fucking a a donut what i want to do for a consequence free piece of pie oh my god so yes i know it's good for me but oh i don't want to do it coffee is only the latest thing in a long line of sacrifices that i've made when it comes to my vices sugar was one of the very first things that i gave up i've slowly reintegrated it back into my life but i'm still not eating nearly as much sugar as i used to back in the day and that was definitely one of the hardest things to give up because i love me some sweets and then when i gave up gluten it got even harder because i really love pastries and i really really love sweet pastries so that was pretty nightmarish the coffee sacrifice by comparison is is nothing i'm gonna rate it a five out of ten because it is as painful as it is beneficial it's, it's like right there in the middle oh god it's so true i i would have ranked it lower but giving up sugar also reduced my headaches a lot and so the amount of pain i lost it bumped it a few points but still pie oh my god all right so w moving on to w writing can be just writing whatever's in your head it could be writing a novel it could be journaling there's a million different ways to write and a lot of people use it to help with their anxiety i don't write i spent a decade in college <laughs> i got burnt out writing i tried uh the blog for a little while but if you've read the blog you know that it's on a hiatus because again i i kind of got burnt out it doesn't do anything. It doesn't make me more anxious. It doesn't make me less anxious. It's just one of those things that I'm like, ah, oh, but now I have to write and I don't want to. I used to do a lot of writing for most of my life. I did a lot of writing. I'm not entirely sure why I don't do it so much anymore. If, if anything, it's probably because since I've managed to balance out everything a little bit more and I'm better able to manage my symptoms, I ultimately am overall more productive between the business, that podcasting end of it, and then running my own massage business, and then just, you know, daily life stuff and maintaining my relationships and just taking care of all the stuff that has to get taken care of. Now that I'm better capable of doing all of those things, it does leave less time for some of the things that I used to really enjoy that were really helpful for me. And writing is one of those. Eventually, I would love to get back to it. There is something for me that is therapeutic and cathartic even about 
putting words to paper, just stream of consciousness, letting things come out and then making it pretty. Because one of the things that I always managed to do back in the day was whatever darkness or anxiety was in my head, I would write it down. I would at least romanticize it a little bit so it didn't just feel like garbage. Because in my head and in my body, it feels like garbage. But when you write it down and you can make it eloquent, it feels like at least it has some degree of purpose and it doesn't seem so ugly and awful as when it's just trapped inside your head. You definitely had a way with words. The, the stuff you used to write was very impressive and you definitely made something out of it. I, I understand where you're coming from, though, with that idea of once you do learn to balance and you do learn to do all this stuff, you do have less time and resources available for some of the creative outlets that were once there. I do regret that. For writing specifically, though, I'm just going to give it a 5 out of 10. doesn't do anything for me or against me, so I'm ranking it in as neutral for myself. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. I do think it's really helpful. There is something, to me at least in my own experience, it was very beautiful about it, very therapeutic, very cathartic. I was able to take something that was awful and at least shine an attractive light on it. But at the same time, obviously it's not a complete necessity for me, otherwise I would still be finding time to do it. It's something that I miss doing, but it's obviously not a necessity thing for me. So I'm gonna give it a nine out of 10. I mean, obviously the writing is something that is not going to work for everybody because there are some people who don't enjoy it. They don't like writing things. They don't like reading. It doesn't hold appeal for them. It's more frustrating for them than it is helpful. So I could definitely see how writing is something that is not one size fits all. But I think if we wanted to broaden it out in terms of creative expression, which just doesn't fit with W, which is why we didn't do it. Uh, but creative expression, I think that I would say a 10 out of 10, because I do feel like that is something that is necessary. And it doesn't always look artistic. Creative expression can come out in a variety of ways. But I do feel that when it comes to dealing with not just anxiety, but mental health things in general, or even just stressors in your life, a certain degree of creative expression and having a creative outlet, I think, is actually really necessary. So that I would give a 10 out of 10. If you are going for creative expression, I, I would give that a much higher rating, probably an 8 or a 9 out of 10. I think that is one of the things that I would benefit from having a little more diversity in my creative expression. Okay, let's move on to X. And X is for... X-rated. So this is sex, masturbation, pornography. When it comes to the X-rated stuff, I am... They don't do a lot for me with my anxiety. And that's because once I start getting anxious, I don't feel safe. And so sex feels almost violative to me and thinking about sex and sexuality feels violative. So anxiety and any of the X-rated stuff just don't go hand in hand for me. I either have to be in a healthy place or oddly a depressed place. If I'm depressed, this is probably TMI, but masturbation is what I go to when I'm depressed. It gives the little bit of spark and keeps me functioning and going randomly. I've heard this from other people as well. 
I think for me, it does help a little bit. I am somebody that does not have a really strong connection to my body. And for whatever reason, when I'm feeling really anxious, I feel more in my body. Maybe it's because of the sensory overload. I get really overwhelmed and I'm very aware of being in my body. And that is uncomfortable and feels awful for me. So sex and masturbation, those things can help, I guess, with the anxiety because it puts a positive spin in being stuck in a body because that is not something that is generally fun for me. I also find that it's helpful for me on one other level that is kind of unorthodox. For whatever reason, for the last several years, I've been deeply fascinated by the adult entertainment industry, listening to podcasts that are about the adult entertainment industry or watching documentaries about the adult entertainment industry and the performers, sex workers, like those sorts of things. It's really deeply fascinating to me. In that sense, maybe it's more of a distraction than it is the X-rated, but it's kind of a combination of those two things for me. So the more anxious that I am, the more likely I am to read erotic literature or listen to podcasts about the adult entertainment industry or watch porn because it is something that helps calm my anxiety and it's kind of unorthodox, but it's a special one of those niche interest things to me. That's kind of interesting. On the just purely physical side of it, because it's not a niche interest for me, I'm going to put X-rated at a two out of ten because trying to get sexual when I am anxious makes it worse. I'm not going to go 0 out of 10 or 1 out of 10, though, because if I can calm down enough to connect with an intimate partner, then that connection is extremely wonderful for my anxiety. But trying to get there out of an anxiety peak is way, way difficult. I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. And this is speaking from like the physical standpoints, even though sex and masturbation, those things can have positive impacts on my anxiety by releasing those endorphins. That part is helpful, but because I have a history of sexual abuse and because I did grow up in a family and a religion and a culture that was very sexually repressive. I also have a lot of shame and guilt around sex and sexuality and my body that I have not been able to overcome or really focus on confronting yet because I'm just not there yet in my journey. So for me, it's like a six out of 10 because it's a double-edged sword. Yes, there are good things that I get out of it, but there's also a lot of hangups that I still have that interfere with my ability to fully enjoy it. That makes a lot of sense then for that ranking. Let's move on to why, which is for yearning, the desire for something more or something different. This can be vision boards, daydreaming, plans for a positive future or a vacation, or even like Ivy was saying earlier, planning what you're going to have for dinner if you enjoy eating. My big yearning piece, my daydream, if you will, is uh, my safe place. If if you've never done a guided imagery safe place, I, I'd recommend it just to try it. You know, you can start out, see if it's comfortable for you or not. But I love the safe place guided imagery and I've created a very detail oriented safe place. And it is one of the few places that I can go to feel somewhat safe because I don't have a sense of safety in reality. And so that escape from reality into that daydream of safety, it can be pretty beneficial for me. I mentioned it earlier in the episode, but escapism has always been one of my primary coping skills ever since I was really little. So I spend a lot of time daydreaming. I spend a lot of time reading stories and just trying to not be inside my own head or even within this reality. That one is indispensable 
I'm sad to say that as I have, as I've gotten older and as I've learned to manage everything better and I've gotten a little bit more balanced, I do feel like on some level I'm losing some of that magic and wonder that I used to have with my daydreaming. And it's something that I'm actively in the process of trying to get back because at one point I basically was telling myself that, well, once you are stable and you're, you know, mentally and emotionally sound, you won't need this anymore and this won't feel is good anymore. It won't be necessary. You'll have more positive feelings in your real life. And while it is true that I do have more positive feelings in my real life, I do still miss those feelings that I got from those forms of escapism. I feel like I've lost touch with that to a certain degree, and I would actually like to get it back. Now, I don't think that escapism is unhealthy. I think it's actually a very healthy thing to have at least a certain degree of. You don't want to be completely living in a fantasy world. But, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to live in a fantasy world part of the time. Because like I said earlier in the episode, life is hard and the world is shitty sometimes. There is a lot to be said for escapism. I would rank yearning probably an 8, maybe a 9 out of 10, with the caveat that it is balanced, that you're able to not impair your functioning by always having your head in the clouds. But if you're able to use it to calm that anxiety as a respite, as a vacation, yes, very beneficial. If you get lost in it to the point you're not able to function anymore, that would be an issue. I agree with that caveat, grudgingly. <laughs> I do think it's important to still be able to function in the quote unquote real world, in the reality that pretty much everybody else lives in. But it has been such a gift to me over the course of my life, having the ability to daydream and yearn for these things that maybe will never happen, but maybe they will. And even if they won't, like it, it feels nice to daydream about the possibilities. I'm personally going to give it a 9 out of 10. I'm not giving it quite a 10 out of 10 because it is too tempting to just immerse myself in that world of my own creation and not exist outside of it. And that brings us to our very final letter of the alphabet today. Well, I guess it's the final letter of the alphabet pretty much every day, at least in English. And that is Z, <laughs> which is going to be for, for Zen. All right. So Zen is uh, the meditation, the mindfulness, some of that dialectical behavioral therapy practices, radical acceptance, things along those lines. I, I will say mindfulness is actually really, really hard for me. I, I know it's good. Being in the moment and paying attention to one thing at a time is extremely difficult for me, so I know it would be beneficial, but it's such a struggle. Oddly, though, meditation, I love meditation, and it is a struggle, but it is a struggle that I, I absolutely adore, and I would not be where I am without meditation. I love it, and I need to do it more. It's the opposite for me. I really enjoy mindfulness practices. I've tried to incorporate those more and more in the last few years, and it's been very helpful. That's a big part of my incentive for getting out into nature because it's easier for me to do mindfulness work when I'm out in nature because things are already a lot more chill and there's so many things that I'm interested in that I enjoy that I can focus in on to be present in the moment. I do find a lot of benefit in mindfulness practice. I am sure there is a ton of benefit to meditation. I'm sure there is because tons of people do it and tons of people swear by it. And it's been around for a very, very long time. I personally do not enjoy 
meditation or at least not traditional meditation it drives me insane i have attempted it many times i cannot get into it i do not feel any real benefit from it and you can say oh you just haven't done it right or whatever fine maybe that's true and maybe someday it will become one of my coping skills but as of right now it is not meditation is a no-go. If you want to know more about that, we do have a beginner's guide to meditation. And one of the things in there is alternatives for people like me who who don't do meditation, where it's it just doesn't work well for us. Like a lot of the other coping skills, if you can find something in this niche that works with you, that works with your issues, I would say this is a 10 out of 10, the idea of Zen. That idea of getting into the moment of learning basically to activate the slow down part of your system and shut down your stress reaction, so vital to anxiety. And so I would definitely say find the right practice for this and 10 out of 10. I would give it like an 8 out of 10 because while it is really beneficial I also, because I have more of a tendency towards the daydreaming and the yearning and the escapism, I am so much more drawn to that and have gotten so much more benefit over the years from that, that I place more value on that from a personal standpoint. But overall, for most people, I would say probably a 10 out of 10. But for me personally, it's more like an 8 out of 10 because it doesn't appeal to me as much as some of the other coping skills. And it's definitely a lot more work. It is about being present in the moment and in your body, which is somebody who dissociates a lot and does not really like being in the reality that everybody seems to live in. It's hard for me to want to do it. I feel better after I do a mindfulness practice, but I don't actually enjoy the thought of it. I kind of dread it. Those are some very good points. And yeah, it does definitely take a lot. It, it takes some effort for sure. And I think that's why it's important to have a, an entire toolbox, an arsenal of coping skills when it comes to anxiety, because sometimes you won't have the resources necessary to invest in one or the other, or one doesn't quite work like you need it to. And so you've got to find one that does work for you that day with that anxiety, with that issue. We hope that maybe... In all of this review, this alphabet, you have found a coping skill that maybe might work for you, maybe more than one. And we would love also to hear from you if there is a coping skill in your alphabet that we didn't cover today. Ivy, do you want to tell them how to get in contact with us so they can shoot us their coping skills? Yeah, you can find us at our website, www.differentfunctional.com. There's a contact form on our website that you can reach us through. You can find us on Facebook as Different Functional. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok as Different underscore Functional. You can email us at differentfunctional at gmail.com. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron, you can find us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash differentfunctional. And I think that's covered all the bases. And yes, we would love to hear from you about your coping skills. Also, we would just love to hear from you in general about anything. I mean, just tell us about your day. If you had a good day, if you had a shitty day, if if you met a stray cat and now you're friends, like that would be awesome. We would love to hear about it. So, so tell us. And if you don't mind leaving us a rating and review, drop us a comment, let other people know that you're listening to us, help people find us, that would be awesome too. Oh yeah, the ratings, the reviews, the comments, all awesome. But definitely let me know if you met a stray cat. I want to know about that. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening. And as always, remember, different does not mean defective. Defective.